Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the UK True Crime Weekly podcast. I'm Adam. Today we go right back to October 1983. Before we start, I must thank my latest Patreon supporters, Senga Robertson, Elliot, Steve D, Claire Peters and Marky Rihana. Thank you all so much for your support. Top of the UK charts at this time was Culture Club with Karma Chameleon, while Duran Duran topped the album chart with Seven and the Ragged Tiger, with U2 next with Under a Blood Red Sky. In the US, it was Welsh warbler Bonnie Tyler with Total Eclipse of the Heart, Ever tried that one at karaoke? This was the month when the US invaded Grenada. The first democratic elections were held in Argentina after seven years of military rule. The first Hooters venue opened in Clearwater, Florida, and Ron Grant completed a 217-day, 8,316-mile run around Australia. In the UK, Neil Kinnock defeated Roy Hattersley to succeed Michael Foote as leader of the Labour Party. Over a million people demonstrated against nuclear weapons in London. And in true crime news, Dennis Nielsen went on trial at the Central Criminal Court, accused of six murders and two attempted murders. As you will know, he confessed to murdering 15 or 16 men. Dor, in South Yorkshire, is an affluent suburb of Sheffield. It's close to the beautiful Peak District. The stunning scenery and the laid-back pace of life means it's a place loved by both residents and the large number of tourists who flock to the area every year. Dor was home for solicitor Barrel Leitner, his wife Avril, a doctor, their 28-year-old barrister son and 18-year-old daughter Nikki. Years ago, before their daughter Nikki was born, they lived nearby and their little son Jonathan escaped from the garden, wandered up the road and drowned in a neighbour's ornamental pond. It was, as you can imagine, a horrendous time for the couple, But although, of course, they were forgetting the tragedy, they moved on and life was now very good for the family. And finally, the day they'd been looking forward to for so long arrived. On Saturday, the 23rd of October 1983, the family hosted the wedding of their daughter Suzanne to Ivor Wolfe, an optician from Glasgow. The couple had a lovely home and they hosted the reception for over 250 friends and family in a marquee in their beautiful garden grounds from 4pm to 8pm. It was by all accounts a stunningly beautiful affair. Despite being towards the end of October, the sun shone brightly for the wedding photographs. Basil is seen wearing tails and smiling broadly as he raises a glass of champagne. The bride's mum Avril is wearing a bright orange dress and fascinator. Many of the guests commented on just how happy and rightly proud the pair seemed. Later, all the guests waved Suzanne and her husband off as they headed away on their honeymoon. When it was over, the couple went to dinner at a nearby relative's house with their son Richard. Nikki, their daughter, who'd been a bridesmaid for her sister, was exhausted from the big day, and she stayed alone in the house. Later, the three family members returned home and went to bed, happy but tired, after a wonderful and memorable day. Although the family were ready for sleep, somebody else in Sheffield that night had other plans. 
At around 11.15pm, a man was looking for a house to burgle when he stumbled upon the Leitner's large home and seeing his opportunity he broke in through the patio and headed into the house. Exhausted by the day, Nikki was fast asleep when she woke to what appeared to be screams from her mum. She could then hear her dad arguing with someone she did not know before hearing a gasping, choking sound and then all returned to deathly quiet. The next sound was again her mum, but this time she was shouting, just take the money and go, leave us alone, followed by what Nikki described as terrible screaming. The intruder returned to Nikki's bedroom, where he shone a torch into her face, telling her, put the light on, scream and you are dead. At knife point, he led a terrified Nicola out of her room, making her step over the dead body of her father, before taking her back to the marquee where he sat her on a chair and tied her hands behind her back. Nicola then just experienced the most horrendous hours of her life as she was raped in the marquee. As morning approached, Nikki told her attacker that she was cold in the garden. He took her back to the bedroom, where he tied her up using the ties of her dead brother Richard before raping her twice more in the bed. The man spoke to her throughout the ordeal, telling her how he's on the run from an open prison and boasting that her whole family had been slaughtered. The last words he said before he left were, I'm going now, don't suffocate yourself. And on his way out, the intruder helped himself to champagne and cheese left over from the wedding. The day after the ceremony, the workmen arrived at the house to take down the marquee. This routine job turned out to be anything but routine, as they found Nicky in a high state of distress and blood everywhere. They immediately called the police, who had the unenviable task of seeing the evidence of the utter horror that had taken place in the house. In what was modern technology for the time, the police videoed the crime scene. The first body covered by the video was Avril Leitner, face down on the floor. It seemed like robbery had been the motive for the attack, as her credit cards and various items of her jewellery were found on the floor of her bedroom, which was situated downstairs. She'd been killed by a knife wound to her neck, which severed her jugular vein. As well as a large number of other wounds on her body, there were four stab wounds on her arm and 13 on the palms of her hand, which showed that Avril had put up a ferocious struggle with her attacker as she fought for her life. Basil had been murdered on the landing, where he suffered two stab wounds to the throat and one to the back. The video next panned to 28-year-old Richard's bedroom, where Richard lay sprawled on his bed, with his hands on his chest where he'd suffered two terrible knife wounds and there was just blood everywhere. Mick Burdis was a detective on the investigation who described the initial work on the inquiry as follows. We had about 400 people connected with the actual wedding and the people involved in catering and in photography and all the rest of the trappings that go on with weddings. So we'd very, very rapidly developed an enormous inquiry. Forensic officers arrived at the scene House-to-house inquiries were carried out, and at the nearby village hall, a makeshift incident room was quickly established to take evidence and to coordinate the inquiry. Even at this early stage, the police knew that key to success was the evidence from the one survivor left at the house, Nikki. She was, of course, incredibly distressed from her ordeal, and she was covered in her parents' blood on both her body and her nightdress. Vic Broff, an artist, was brought to the house to get a likeness of the killer and he commented, She was really traumatised. Sometimes you just have to switch off. 
and I just got my head into the drawing and that was it. I just did it. The picture drawn was a very detailed representation of a face with curly hair and a slightly bent nose. But still, despite the quality of the drawing, there was no specific information about just who they were looking for and the police knew that someone capable of this level of violence was likely to strike again. And soon. When they'd released the details to police forces around the country, Detective Burdis received a call from a fellow officer saying that from the clear artist's impression, he suspected he knew the identity of the man they were looking for, Arthur Hutchinson. Hutchinson had last been seen almost three weeks ago by the police, in Selby. Selby, in North Yorkshire, is around 20 miles south of the city of York and 42 miles from Daw, where the massacre had taken place. On the 28th of September 1983, 42-year-old Arthur Hutchinson was brought into the police station ahead of his appearance at the magistrate's court that afternoon. Hutchinson faced charges of theft, burglary and rape. After being searched in the downstairs interview room, he told the officers that he needed to use the bathroom and so Hutchinson's handcuffs were removed. Seizing his opportunity, Hutchinson ran up the steps from the police station to the adjoining magistrate's court, where he entered the first courtroom, leapt over the rail onto the press bench and then dived through a window through the glass to escape to the street below. Hutchinson seriously hurt his knee on the glass and he also landed on barbed wire, but he still managed to escape, hobbling away, despite an intensive search. It's thought that after this he hid in gutters and shrubbery, surviving by eating off the land. This wasn't the first time that Hutchinson had been in trouble. He grew up with his mum Louise and his five sisters and brother in Hartlepool, on England's northeast coast. Hutchinson very early showed a nasty side to his character. But his mum, she blamed this on a cycle accident he had when he was aged just four, which left him in a coma of a fractured skull and also led to meningitis. But the first very serious event in his childhood was when he stabbed one of his sisters. He was just seven. His mum explained it away, saying they used to tease him and call him a bastard, as his father, along with one of his siblings, was Louise's lodger, Arthur Hutchinson Sr. His brother Dino said of him, He was backward, you see. Everybody used to take the mickey out of him. He was trying to prove something all the time. But this incredibly strong relationship he had with his mother meant that whatever he had done, when he went to her, she would forgive him and she'd always find some explanation to justify his actions. At age 11, he was in court charged with indecent assault, the first of almost 20 appearances, with four being for sexual intercourse with girls under the age of consent. By his mid-teens, he was into petty crime and stealing cars. Detective Dick Copeman a local policeman at the time in Hartlepool, said of him, Around about 17 years old, he started committing petty crime. Theft of motor vehicles, changing the licence plates on vehicles, just a bit of a jack the lad, nothing to make him stand out from a lot of the other petty criminals in the area. But others felt differently already. Hutchinson had started work on a farm, and one of his colleagues, George Hobson, worked with Arthur, and he said that he always felt uneasy around him, adding... There was an undercurrent all the time and you could tell he wasn't, he wasn't genuine, that inwardly he was violent. Arthur was certainly popular with the local girls, having a large number of short relationships and by the time he was 18, his then girlfriend and neighbour 
was pregnant with his child. The pair married, but it wasn't a happy time, with Hutchison beating and raping his wife regularly, and three years later they had split. This was soon followed by his first spell in prison for unlawful sexual intercourse. At 27, Arthur married again in a whirlwind romance just five months after they'd met at a Christmas party. His wife described their first meeting saying, He just stood and watched me for two hours without saying a word. I suppose it flattered me. But like his first marriage, Hutchison's violence and unfaithfulness quickly destroyed the relationship with his wife saying, Anything could provoke him, sometimes nothing. He used to boast about his conquests. The day he left me, he beat me up in the street. He knocked me to the ground and put the boot in. I once saw him knock his mother out of her rocking chair, halfway across the room. After this marriage broke up, Hutchison spent more time in jail for sexual assaults, and he also served a five-year sentence for carrying firearms and attempting to murder his brother. He'd only just been released from this sentence when he carried out the further rape which led to his escape from Selby Magistrates Court. The problem for the police now was that although they knew the man they wanted to speak with, this was a man who'd already been on the run for almost three weeks and they knew nothing about his whereabouts during that time. Due to the urgency of capturing Hutchinson before he could harm anyone else, the police released his picture to the media. This had a dramatic effect in the local community. Alan Whitehouse, a reporter for regional paper The Yorkshire Post, said, It was almost like the Wild West. You had the police issuing a photograph of Hutchinson, stressing how dangerous he was, and suddenly he was catapulted from being a small-time petty crook to being the most wanted man in England. The fear spread like a ripple. You saw women afraid to go out by themselves changing their routines, changing their habits. Having boyfriends and husbands pick them up from work, exactly as happened during the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. For ten days, Hutchinson was on the run. Ever since his job as a farmhand as a teenager, he'd been a keen allotment user. And during his time on the run, he took food from a variety of allotments, as well as back gardens. Whereas others may have slept in the wild... Hutchinson disguised himself so he was able to enjoy the comforts of staying in rooms at pubs and B&Bs. Police close to his childhood home of Hartlepool kept a very close watch near his mum's house and there were numerous police broadcasts for information. But rather than staying below the radar as a man on the run, Hutchinson wrote to the press. Yep, in these pre-email social media days, he actually wrote them a letter. He told them to stop reporting on the manhunt and protested his innocence. In his letter, he also gave himself a nickname, calling himself The Fox. Diane Simpson, a behavioural psychologist, examined the letter and suggested that the way it was written with a lot of force put on the pen shows he clearly loves the attention. She said, This was a letter constructed to parade himself. This is someone totally focused on what he wants to do with no thought of repercussions. Only focused on what he wants to do like a missile. What do you make of reaching those conclusions from a letter? Any sense in it, or is it just a load of old nonsense? Loving the attention, Hutchinson phoned the news deck of the Yorkshire Post newspaper, telling them he was able to come and go at will, and he'd been in and out of the town of Doncaster four times, adding, I sleep by day and I travel at night, so I'm not going to give myself up. 
This phone call was recorded and broadcast on local radio Sheffield. But while this publicity was fueling Hutchinson's arrogance and his almost certainty of not being caught, the police were in fact setting a trap for him. They knew he was worried about his knee and chose to make the injury sound much more serious than it really was. Detective Burdis said, During one of the broadcasts that we gave to the media, we indicated that this injury to his leg may well be tingling, may well be causing him trouble and it could well become gangrenous and then he could lose the limb and he would probably die. His other weakness, as you remember, was his utter devotion to his mother, so the police tapped his mum's phone. And boom. At 4am, the police listening in heard Hutchinson make a call to his mum, telling her that he was coming home to see her. On a chilly Guy Fawkes day in 1983, a huge police operation was underway with officers and dogs drafted into the area near Hutchinson's mum's house. As night fell, a local farmer went outside to feed his dogs and check the cattle. As he did so, he and his wife saw Hutchison moving through the shadows. Panicked by being spotted, Hutchison started to run straight for his mum's house before becoming acutely aware of the police presence and hiding in woodland. But it was too late and the police dogs uncovered him and brought him to the floor within sight of his mum's house. Hutchinson did not give him meekly, and in the ensuing struggle he stabbed himself, and he was taken away in an ambulance. When arrested, Hutchinson said to officers, I'm not a murderer. I should have stayed down my foxhole, shouldn't I? There was also a tape he'd left in a nearby B&B, where he'd stayed under the name A. Fox, which said the following... Because I was able to get this tape recorded, I've been able to listen to everything that's been going on. Where they've been waiting for me, where they've been looking for me, so I knew exactly which way to head to keep away from them. Like playing cat and mouse, or should I say, fox on the trot. I'm making no comments on the triple killings. Let them think what they want. I'm still free. That's the main thing. In the late summer of 1984... Hutchinson's trial began at Durham Crown Court. At first, Hutchinson denied any involvement in the events at Dore, but as the sheer amount of forensic evidence piled up, even Hutchinson could see that his explanation was just not credible. In these pre-DNA analysis days, he had a rare blood group. It was shared with just 50,000 people in the country. And the injury to his knee that he'd sustained diving out of the window at the magistrate's court meant that his blood had covered the bridesmaid Nikki's bedsheets. There were also his teeth imprints on the cheese and his palm prints were taken from a bottle of champagne that he drank from. In light of all this evidence, Hutchison changed his story to say that he'd met Nikki in a pub in Sheffield the day before the murders and they'd arranged to meet once the reception was over. It was suggested by Hutchinson's defence that she'd left the patio door open for him and told him there'd be a bottle of champagne waiting for him in the kitchen. This false tale caused tremendous distress to Nicky, who had to spend over four hours in the dock being questioned about what had happened on that horrendous night. During her evidence, she didn't once look at Hutchinson, whilst he watched her the whole way through and occasionally a smile was seen flickering across his features. Reading the transcripts of the case, the tactics of Hutchinson's legal team are really quite shocking. Nicky was shaking whilst giving evidence, and we can only imagine just how repulsed and how angry she felt, as it was incorrectly suggested to her that one, 
she brought him to the house and two, she'd enjoyed having sex with him. But if Hutchinson didn't kill the three members of the family, who did? When he was asked a question in court, Hutchinson pointed to a reporter from the Sunday Mirror newspaper and accused him of the murders. Hutchinson explained that his prints were on the champagne bottles because he picked them up to use as weapons against the reporter. When asked why he changed his story, he alleged that the reporter had been threatening his beloved mum, saying, That man, pointing to the reporter in the gallery, has been going to my mum's house every week for the last ten months, and I was frightened for her. I wanted to get the truth out. There's your killer. On the 14th of September, 1984, the jury of six men and six women took just four hours to find Hutchinson guilty of rape and the three murders. Hutchinson's face didn't show any emotion. The judge told him, you are interested in weapons, you are arrogant, manipulative, have a self-centred attitude towards life and a severe personality disorder which is not amenable to any form of treatment. Hutchinson was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Commenting on Hutchinson, Detective Burdis said, many of the criminals that I've dealt with have had feelings of remorse and to a large extent they've regretted the actions they've committed but Arthur Hutchinson just didn't have those sort of feelings. It didn't matter who got in his way, because he would destroy them. After the conviction, the press reported that his mum said she would not see him again. She was quoted as saying, I could never believe before that Arthur could be so violent, and I thought everything about the case was a pack of lies. I believed him. But actually Louise didn't stop loving her son until her death the following year. She later spoke about her enduring love for Arthur, saying that she still loved him. She talked of the night he was captured, saying, You could see in his eyes he was sorry. He's been a bad lad, and it has split the family because I stand by him. They accuse him of being my favourite, but I loved them all. Arthur just needed the same. This reaction reminds me of the mothers of other monsters we've covered in this podcast. In particular, I recall the mum of Colin Hatch, whose case was covered in episode 5, who despite his utterly horrendous crimes, she was always there for him, even being in court to watch the man who eventually killed her son sentenced. In prison, Hutchinson was feared. He continued to practice martial arts to a high standard and kept himself incredibly physically fit. But the thing that worried his fellow prisoners the most was one, his continual obsession with knives, and two, his complete coldness towards violence. It meant nothing to him. His family too remained scared. In an interview with the News of the World newspaper in 2004, his brother Dino revealed that Hutchinson had threatened him and also made it clear he would track down and harm Suzanne and Nicola Leitner, saying, I knew he would go for them and me afterwards. He's regularly made threatening calls to me, leaving coded or cryptic messages. The really frightening thing is he's hinted at going after the surviving Leitners. He never forgets a grudge. No matter how old he is when he comes out of prison, I know he will still be coming after me. In 2002, if the parole board had taken a decision that Hutchinson was no longer a threat, he could have been released. But the Home Secretary intervened and gave him a whole life sentence, meaning that he would die in prison. On the 21st of August 2013, Arthur Hutchinson became the first lifer to challenge his whole life tariff under a new European Court of Justice ruling. Now 73, Hutchinson loved being in the headlines again, 
but this was so upsetting to the families of his victims. On hearing of Hutchinson's appeal, a spokesperson for them said, Whenever even the name Arthur Hutchinson rears its ugly head, it does nothing but create fear and distress to the victims of this heinous crime. Let the human rights judiciary members be thrust in our position for just one day, and then maybe they would understand this. Luckily, Hutchinson's appeal was refused, and he will die in prison. Patreon supporter Steve D recommended this case to me, and researching the case, it was hard to believe that such a horrendous event actually occurred. Hutchison would never be released to cause more harm, but quite what caused him to arrive in door of all places and target the Leitner family is unknown. What made it even more upsetting for Nikki is the story locally that she met Hutchinson on her sister's hen night and then invited him back to the house, which is categorically untrue. When there, presumably to steal, quite what made him carry out such brutal attacks is impossible to know. It's also unclear why he decided to let Nicky live. But ever the coward, Hutchinson won't give any answers. And even today, he still totally denies responsibility, claiming he was framed. But what happened to the two surviving sisters, Nicky and Suzanne? As I understand it, both moved away and changed their names, with it being suggested to me that Suzanne went on to have three children and Nicky married in London in the 90s. As is so often the case with the surviving victims of the crimes we examine on this podcast, we can only hope they've managed to find some peace and happiness in their lives, despite the horror of what happened almost 35 years ago. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the UK True Crime Weekly Podcast. Please go to our new Facebook group, just search UK True Crime on Facebook. It's a closed group, come in there, let's talk about the case and other parts of UK True Crime as well be great to see you there. You can leave a review on iTunes or else support us on patreon.com forward slash UK True Crime where you can see my latest behind the scenes video and this week a brand new bonus episode is released for Patreon supporters. That's all for me for now so until we speak on Tuesday have a good week and cheerio.